Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and thanks so much for tuning into this very special episode of the One New Person podcast. As you can probably imagine, I frequently go on other podcasts to spread my message of human connection, perspectives, empathy, generosity, and understanding, the three new people philosophy, as it were. A few months back, I had the incredible honor of being a guest on Kindsight 101, a podcast for educators about kindness in the classroom and promoting kindness out there in the world. It was created and is hosted by Morgan Michael, who is a veteran educator up in Canada that I met in one of Seth Godin's online workshops. Morgan was one of the best hosts I've ever had the pleasure of working with on a podcast. She was so well prepared and genuinely interested in my work and my message, and it made it just a joy. The conversation that we ended up having is one of, if not the best conversations I've ever had in long form in the media, and I asked her permission to share it with you here on this podcast. So what follows is the episode that Morgan put out on Kindsight 101 in its entirety for you to enjoy here. If you do enjoy it, please give Morgan some love. She is over at smallactbigimpact.com. That's smallactbigimpact.com. You can also just run a Google search for Kindsight 101 or go to the show notes in the description of this episode on onenewperson.com where you'll find all of the links to her podcast, her work, and her uh, connections on social media. And it's worth noting that Morgan was just nominated for a Canadian Podcast Award for her incredible work on Kindsight 101. Truly, it's 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 so exciting to have been a part of a, uh, a such a successful and well loved show. So. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation about kindness, empathy, and generosity on Kindsight 101 with Morgan Michael. This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. Kindness is a choice. It's choosing to say, I hear you, I see you, and I'm still here for you, even if we don't always see eye to eye. Oh, you are in for such a treat today. In my conversation with Brian Miller, we talk about the connection between magic and learning, three ingenious ways to remember someone's name, and some actionable ways that we can connect with anyone. Brian Miller is an accomplished magician, corporate keynote presenter, and motivational speaker who shares with his audience how magic can teach us to connect deeply with others. You can find him on 3newpeople.com or at Brian Miller anywhere on social media. We had so much fun together. I laughed and oh my goodness, you're going to learn so much about how similar magic is to teaching. So Brian Miller, thank you so much for joining me today on Kindsight 101. I'm really, really excited about this conversation. I think the audience is just going to learn so much from your very unique perspective and your life experience. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's really uh, just a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start with 
the way that magic actually, you are a magician, but you've sort of transitioned to becoming a speaker. And magic allowed you to take on the personality of someone you wished you were until you actually became that person. You had a really strong bond to your family, but school wasn't always easy for you at first socially. You were bullied through elementary school and middle school, but during high school, that all sort of changed for you. Talk to me about the role of magic in the evolution of who you were as a kid and who you have become and who you are now. Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, you you know, I, I was your kind of stereotypical bullied, you know, kind of outcast. Um, and this will sound strange to some of the younger folks out there. But, you know, so my parents were divorced when I was less than one year old, which is, like you say that to someone now and they're like, yeah, like so is everybody's parents. But um, when I was a kid, that was incredibly unusual. There was a pretty good chance I was the only kid in any classroom in any group uh, that had divorced parents. Um, my parents went out of their way to make my childhood as normal as possible. So like all the credit to them, they split my time perfectly in half. They lived 10 minutes from each other and they got along amicably my entire childhood. But it was hard being the only one with divorced parents. And I was, you know, I was a little geeky. I was always kind of a teacher's pet. I was always the top of the class, which kind of, you know, sounds like bragging. But when you're a little kid, it's it's not ideal. You're, you're ripe for getting picked on. And so I was kind of bullied, like right out of a Disney Channel original movie. You know, <laughs> I had the, I had the books knocked out of my hands all my childhood, and called four eyes for my glasses, and you know, uh, shoved into lockers and all that stuff. Um, so I, I really had, I developed really a, a debilitating speech anxiety. I was really uncomfortable around other people. I could not get up and give a book report. Like just if I was asked to get up and give a book report, I would literally pass out and wake up in the nurse's office and get sent home. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was really a disaster. And so magic simultaneously had been a part of my whole life. You know, my dad and my grandfather, they were magic enthusiasts. They were magic lovers and neither of them ever did it professionally, but I was around it constantly. When my friends would come over, my dad would do magic tricks for us. He would come into my school and do it for my class. And, uh, one of my, my best earliest memories is my grandparents, uh, lived on Long Island and my dad and I would take the train from Buffalo to Long Island where I, I lived in Buffalo uh, for Thanksgiving every year to meet up with my, uh, my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And we would all do Thanksgiving at my grandparents on Long Island. And when I was growing up, there used to be this TV show, the world's greatest magicians. And it was on around Thanksgiving every year. And my grandfather and I would sit in front of that. Remember when TVs were like seven inches across and that was the living room TV. Yep. <laughs> um, we would sit with our noses at that thing and watch like two hours of magicians. And then he would help me learn a couple of magic tricks from like a magic book he would get me or something. And then when the Thanksgiving dinner was over, I would stand up and do a trick or two for the family that he had helped me learn. So m magic was a huge part of my life, but it wasn't until I was actually in somewhere around eighth or ninth grade when I discovered that I could actually perform it for somebody else. Mm. Now, here's the thing people don't realize about magic. It's as far as I can tell, the only art form that you cannot do for your own enjoyment. 
<laughs> yeah. You can't fool yourself with a magic trick. You always know the secret, right? You're your own worst heckler. I had done magic for myself. I had never shown it to anybody else. And, and you simply can't do magic in isolation. So there was a time in maybe ninth grade, I'm sitting in a uh, in the cafeteria, not with friends, just other kids at the same table. And I offered to so, show somebody a magic trick because it, it was some trick I had been working on and I was so excited about it that my excitement had finally outweighed my social anxiety. Hmm. Um, not that I wasn't shaking while I was doing it. I was, I was totally, but when I finished the trick, the kids jaws dropped and they reacted and they started calling other kids over. Hey, you got to see this. And all of a sudden, like overnight, I was the magic kid and I had a personality. I had attention and magicians learn to kind of hide behind the trick a little bit because the trick itself is so amazing. Um, you can kind of just do the trick and almost still be invisible, um, while you're interacting with somebody, it's really, it's really spectacular. And so through, through high school, I kept doing more and more magic. And what happens is you decide, well, I'm doing magic, which isn't real anyway. I may as well be somebody that I wish I was while I'm doing a trick, right? I wish I was funny. So I may as well be funny while I'm doing magic. And there's no problem doing that because magic's not real anyway. Hmm. So, so many kids that get into magic are able to develop self-confidence and interpersonal skills through using magic as a crutch. And if you're lucky, like I was, eventually you're able to let go of the magic and retain the confidence and the uh, the sense of uh, self-assurance. Wow, so well said. And I think there are so many people who are, quote unquote, entertainers or people who perform for for other people. And I've heard this before where they almost take on an alter ego in order to allow them to step into this performer role and then it becomes a part of them. It's so, I think it's really empowering. What would you say to that kid that you were in elementary school when you felt like you were going through the really difficult bullying times when you found it difficult perhaps to find meaningful friendships? What would you say to that kid, either yourself or to a student who is experiencing that right now and just hasn't quite found their, their legs. I would probably look at a kid like that today who's getting bullied, who's having trouble making friends and say, just hold on because believe it or not, when you get older, uh, kids like you rule the world. <laughs> totally. And I think even in your book, you talked about practicing magic as it, it almost felt like a revenge of the nerds, kind yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, that's how I like to describe magic. Magic is probably 90% like revenge of the bullied, revenge of the nerd. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's a, such a powerful narrative to to provide for people, I think, too, especially especially the ones who are who just haven't found their tribe yet, too. I think that's a really important part. Actually, on, can I, on that note, speaking of finding your tribe, that right there is one of the things that magic does for kids. Why I encourage so many parents, if their kid, if it feels like your kid at any age, somewhere after about seven, seven's about the youngest you can really discover, um, you can really learn magic. But mm. after that age, um, I would tell any parent, if your kid is having trouble fitting in, get him into magic. I know that sounds like the opposite of what you would do because it's like, whoa, leaning into the nerd thing. But <laughs> no, what happens is the magic community 
is one of the strongest, most bonded communities of people, let alone artists, that you could possibly imagine. And the reason is magicians are bound by secrets. You're not allowed to talk to anybody who's not a magician about magic. Mm. So magicians only have each other. And because of that, the community being bound by secrets and being and, and just being just it's a community of misfits and 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 when you go to a either a either a local or a regional or a national or international magic convention at any level when you're in a room of magicians most of them are amateurs just like any art field some of them are part-time pros and a handful are professionals everybody belongs and they belong simply by the fact that they're there and they love magic and it's incredible hmm You've said before that magic is the great equalizer and that you as a magician hold this power of creating awe for other people, like childlike awe, whether or not you do it for adults as you do or whether you do it for other kids as you did as a child. And so I would love for you to tell us the Ed story, if you would, because I just – I found myself thinking about – magic as this this leveler right and i i connected it to education too because i found myself thinking how similar magicians are to teachers and in many respects education has been said to be the great equalizer if done right can Mm. you know when i think about this ability to connect with people just to bring out kind of that sense of awe and yeah, suspension of disbelief. It's kind of like real true learning, right? It's it's a similar feeling, that curiosity mm-hmm. and and that humanity. Can you talk a little bit about that and how perspective helped you to to really connect with people? Sure. Uh, and I'd be happy to tell a kind of a quick abbreviated version of the Ed story. The the Ed story that you're referring to was was the essentially the TEDx talk that that changed my life and, and made me famous. That, that was, a, you know, that launched me into a, a new career uh, in, as a speaker and an author and, a, you know, and all these other things, a consultant on uh, human connection, especially, essentially is my job now, a uh, uh, consultant on human connection, whatever that means. Um, we just kind of invent jobs for ourselves. <laughs> uh, so speaking to that kind of that equalizer and and ed and education it's so funny that you just brought up that you feel like education is also kind of like the great equalizer um i i speak to and with educators as a it's over 50 percent of my work uh, which you may not have known before we actually uh, before i just told you that a good half of my work is working doing speaking engagements running workshops um doing consulting on human connection with educators, both in middle school to high school, a lot, lot of high school and in the college, you know, and, and also some grad schools as well and working with administrators and staff and faculty, in addition to doing, you know, inspirational speaking for students, high school students and college students. Just a few weeks ago, I was giving a kind of a marquee presentation, a one hour presentation for Alpha Delta Kappa, which is the International Women's Educators organization and they were having their every other year international meeting. So there were like, I don't know, like over a thousand women educators and and I was giving a, a presentation. 
And I mentioned that, that magic is a great equalizer. And, and what I mean by that is that you could have like a multi-billion dollar CEO sitting next to an you know, impoverished kid from a third world country. And at the moment of magic, in a magic trick, they both experience the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to imagine any other place where that is possible, right? Where mm-hmm. those two people go to the same place um, emotionally. And, and I mentioned that and someone said, yeah, magic and education and teaching, right? Somebody said that. And that's what you just brought up as well. And I think you're right. I think when teaching is done well, we have an opportunity to bring everybody to the same place. Um, you mentioned the suspension of disbelief. There's something interesting about the suspension of disbelief, which is that, uh, and I forget who said this first, it might've been Teller of Penn and Teller, uh, Mm -hmm. but don't quote me on that. I think it was Teller who said the difference is that the suspension of disbelief, that's what we think of when we go to a movie, right? You sit in the movie theater and you know, it's a green screen and you know, it's CGI and they're not really flipping around the universe, but the Avengers definitely seem real for a while, right? Mm -hmm. That you, you suspend your disbelief in order to get immersed in the experience. Well, magic is a suspension of disbelief, but it's not a willing suspension of disbelief. Like in the movie theater, magic is an unwilling suspension of disbelief. Mm. You don't choose to suspend your disbelief. You have to, you have no other option when confronted with a piece of magic. And as I'm thinking about it with what you just drew that parallel with educators, I think teaching when done well is the same thing. I think when teaching's done well, Students don't choose to learn. They just have to learn. It just happens. Mm-hmm. It happens. And and I know that you and I are both involved in the world of Seth Godin, and he talks a lot about enrollment. And, you know, um, so I don't mean choosing to learn in that, you know, obviously a student has to be open to the possibility of learning. That's the enrollment, right? They have to be willing to learn. But once they're open to it, I think that when teaching's done well, that there's no longer a choice, that it happens because education is so powerful and teaching is so powerful when, when you make that connection with, with a student. At the beginning of my career, I was doing a lot of magic in restaurants. I was going, you know, table to table, doing card tricks, coin tricks, you know, that sort of thing, um, close-up magic while people were waiting for their meals. And a, a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're hired to do magic. Uh, but amazingly, that's not why magicians are hired in restaurants. Not really. What we're hired to do is connect with people. We're hired to uh, do what a bartender does, essentially, but at the tables for families. Uh, you, you don't go to your favorite bar because they have the best alcohol. Every bar's got the same alcohol, mm-hmm. right? You go to your favorite bar because that bartender or the staff or the ambiance or the environment, there's something about that place that makes you feel seen and valued and acknowledged, right? Mm-hmm. And even if we don't always put it in those words, that's what draws us to specific places. It's not the drink. It's not always the food. I got to give people a human connection with an otherwise kind of faceless establishment in a world where money was getting tighter and and the economy had collapsed again, you know, the uh, the great recession in a, in in the states uh, that obviously rippled through the whole world where people had gone from going out to eat once a week to maybe once a month or less, it was so much more important that that once a month that people remembered that positive association with the restaurant. And so magicians actually did really well during the recession. It 
restaurants because we were able to give people that connection. We were able to put a humanity on it. Early in my career, there was a night where I was just on fire, right? You have a day, yeah. You ever have a day where you wake up and everything's going well? I mean, not most days, right? Most days are a disaster, <laughs> but but some days you wake up and just like you, it doesn't even seem like it's going to be a good day. You're you're you know you're you missed your alarm. You wake up late. You have no time to get ready. But when you check the mirror, somehow in spite of that, your hair just looks like it was sculpted, <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, it's going to be a good day. So I was having one of those nights as a magician. I was like, you know, I, I was I was quick and witty and funny and my, it was just I, I was unstoppable. So I swaggered up to this table, you know, really full of myself that night. And it was a uh, an older gentleman and his wife. And I said, you know, folks, would you like to see some magic while you wait for your meals? And the man looked up at me and he said, sir, I would love to see some magic, but I can't. And then he hit me with this. He said, unfortunately, I'm blind. And I, I still feel that right now in my gut. It was a long time ago now. And I still feel it every time I think about that moment because I, I had no idea. And I was just like frozen and that word blind was just ringing in my ears. And I said, um, I finally just snapped out of it. I said, I really apologize. I mean, I, I, you know, I just kind of dropped the character, dropped the magician, dropped the persona. I said, I didn't realize, I didn't know. I don't have anything I can do for you right now. But then in an attempt to save the situation and like make myself feel better in the process, I said, hey, if you ever come visit me again, I promise I'll have some sort of magic to share with you. <laughs> and he had a big smile. He goes, I'll hold you to that. And I just went on with my night. And a few weeks later, they came back. And I panicked because I had completely forgotten about them. And I mean completely forgotten about them. I raced back to the room where I kept my props, my bag, and I was just like racking my brain for a trick, any trick that I could do for someone who was blind. You would think it'd be easy to fool a blind person with magic, but their senses are so heightened that you can't sneak an extra thing into their hand. Like magicians, we talk, we've taught other magicians who've encountered this have talked about it. Um, you know, like, oh, maybe I can, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a magician do the thing with the clown, like the red balls, the clown's noses, where they put one in their hand, they open it, and now there's two. Yes. You can't do that to someone who's blind. They can absolutely 100% tell that they've got an extra one when they're not supposed to notice because their other senses have been so heightened. They're so <laughs> used to using their sense of touch. It's actually unbelievably difficult to fool someone who can't see. Um, so I was trying to think of something that I could do for him. And at the time, I had no idea where it had, it had come from. I've since traced it back to this, uh, this rare manuscript by this uh, Los Angeles legend of magic. Uh, his, we call him Pop. His name's Whit Hayden. And so I, I went out. I walked back out. And I said, uh, folks, my name's Brian. I'm the magician. And it just cut me off. He just goes, all right, we're back. <laughs> and he goes, what do you got for me? And he had that ear-to-ear -ear grin on his face. So I, I sat down, turned to his wife. I sat next to his wife and I said, you know, is it okay if I sit next to you? She said, sure. Well, I asked him for his name. I'm not a psychic. I'm a magician. I asked him for his name. He told me it was Ed. That would have been amazing. He would, I wouldn't have had to do any of this if I could have just divined his name. I said, do you trust your wife? He said, sometimes. And so I said, will you trust her now for a few minutes? He said, sure. So I, I took out a pack of playing cards. I gave them to her. I said, mix them up, make sure there's nothing special, you know, and that's why I need him to trust her. Like, like she has to verify for him that everything I'm doing is on the up and up or this doesn't matter. Sure. So she says they're fine. They're normal. I said, no markings, no abrasions, nothing funny, nothing nor like un you know, unnatural. He said, she said, no. 
I took Ed's hand. I placed a card in his hand. I said, Ed, do you think this is a red card or a black card? He said red, and he was right. But so what? That's a 50-50 chance. So I put the next one in. He goes red. And he's right again. Eh, 25% chance of getting it right twice in a row, right? So I put the next one in, and he goes black. Again, correct. His wife is getting – she furrows her breath. She's getting very skeptical, so we just kept going. Red, black, red, red. We're going faster. Red, black, red, 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 black, black. He's getting literally all of them right. We're speeding it up. We go through the entire pack at the end of it. He, this guy is howling. Ed is laughing so hard it's shaking the restaurant. Like everybody in the place is now staring at us. And I turned, and his wife was weeping tears of joy. Mm. And to, to date, the most beautiful experience of magic I've ever had, you know, in a career as a professional magician. In my live presentations and in my TEDx talk, How to Magically Connect with Anyone, I tell the secret. I do explain how it worked, how he did it. Um, I don't want to give it away here. I think it's worth – it requires a visual. So I didn't explain it in my book either. I do think it's worth – watching the TEDx talk. It's not like I need more views. It's got 3 million views. Like it, it, I don't need, I'm not trying to like pull more views out of people. Right. <laughs> but like the key to magic. And I believe the key to life is not right. Tricking people, right. It's not fooling people. It's connecting with people. And that the goal of great magic and the goal of a, a great, the goal of great education and something that we can do on a daily basis. Um, no matter if we have 10 seconds with someone when we're waiting in line for coffee or if we are you know, chatting with our mom or, or our best friend that we've known forever, is we can show up for people, we can look at them in the eye and say, I hear you, I see you, I'm here for you, and we can make an effort to make people feel heard and understood and valued. And the, how the trick worked is really not the point, even though I do explain it in the TEDx talk. The point is, no matter who you are, no matter what perspective you have on the world, you can find something in between the two of us that we can um, that we can bond over, that we can connect over. There's there's and that's what I call conversational magic. Is when you, you look at the person across from you and you see the gap in between, and you figure out how can we create something in here in the middle that bonds us, that makes us both feel seen. Wow. What And what a story, because I think it just totally exemplifies your ability to shift your perspective, put yourself in his shoes. And really, I think what struck me about it was not wanting to trick him because you felt like there was almost something violating about that, but more, <laughs> how could you make it so that he, his status was almost raised, like he was the one who was tricking others and giving him that, that ability. And then giving his wife that experience as well because like you said she was the one who was always taking care of him and for him to be able to to be in that role and the joy to experience that joy is just such a beautiful experience that you were able to create for these people and I think about your perspective your book is called three new people you really believe and and I think this is something that really brings both both of our our philosophies together in education, I, I believe that there's this element of small act, big impact. And actually, it's transferable to the world. This idea that we can connect with people on a very small level in seemingly insignificant moments and make a tremendous impact possibly on their lives if they're open to it mm -hmm. and vice versa. And so you talk about 
the fact that we have access at least on average to three new people every day and that we can employ this desire to make a connection. Can you speak to that a little bit more and maybe even touch on the math formula? I know you're a math major. <laughs> the math is uh, funny. I felt like that was the first time in my life I'd used my math degree. I uh, <laughs> took it was a, I took the long way around. Uh, I took a 10-year detour through magic so I could finally use my math degree to <laughs> create the uh, title of this book. Essentially, the Three New People, the title of the book and what I call the Three New People philosophy is that over the course of a lifetime, you meet an average of three new people every single day. And when I tell people that, I always have to clarify because I can see they instantly heard something that I didn't say. I didn't say go out and meet three new people tomorrow. I said you will meet three new people tomorrow on average, right? That this happens as just a fact of life, unless you live in a 500 person town in the you know middle of North Dakota and you never leave your town, right? We're not talking about the outliers, but on average over the course of a lifetime, uh, we meet three new people a day. Some days we meet zero people, some days we meet, we meet 20 new people. It works out to about three on average. Um, and you can work that backwards from a number that that's been proposed in a bunch of places by a bunch of you know social scientists. That's basically eighty thousand over the course of an average lifetime. And if you just work that backwards by the amount of days in a year and the amount of years, and take into account the fact that you're not meeting new people before you're making memories and all that, right? You can work the math backwards. What I realized about that is that the number sounds too high when you tell someone that, and they just have a gut reaction. You just go, nope, it's too high. There's no way. And when you think really carefully about it, you realize, if anything, that number is too low, that the reason we don't recognize how many people we meet on a daily basis is because we treat most of these interactions transactionally. Mm. We just treat them as a means to an end, right? So I give you $3, you give me a cup of coffee, end of transaction, no relationship necessary. Unless we're at Starbucks, I give you $27, you give me a cup of coffee, you get the <laughs> idea, right? So no relationship necessary, right? End of transaction. Except it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, undoubtedly, my favorite word in the English language is sonder. A bunch of folks have picked up this word over the last few years. Uh, um, it's a relatively new invention. I like that it, it looks like wonder, but it's spelled with an S, S-O-N-D-E-R, sonder. And sonder describes that feeling you get when you see someone and you realize that they have an internal life, that they have an entire set of experiences just as real and just as vivid as yours, and yet you have no relation to those experiences. You have no access to them. I think really the, the best way I've ever heard described was really Seth. I mean, he described it as that noise at the back of your head, you know, that noise going around in the back of your head all day, every day. Mm -hmm. When you realize that every single person you, you meet, every single person you see in the world has their own version of that noise, that buzzing, that low-grade hum, mm -hmm. it gets you, – you, you cannot treat somebody transactionally anymore once you recognize that. Now, once you realize that, you go, oh, it's really hard to be annoyed at that person who put almond milk in instead of soy milk in your drink. Like when I see people in the airport – 
yelling at gate agents. I just think to myself, what are you doing? Like, listen, we're all stressed. It's the airport, right? (laughs) Everybody is stressed at the airport. The pilots are stressed at the airport. This is a bad system. We need Elon Musk to solve all of our problems. At least act out of self-interest because there may not be anything that gate agent can do for you, but I guarantee you if you yell at them, they will go out of their way to make it more difficult for you. (laughs) So like at the very least act out of self-interest like, come on. Uh, this three new people philosophy is how I talk about the fact that we've got all these opportunities on a daily basis that come in the form of people to show up to, you know, with, with empathy, with generosity. And it doesn't mean you have to spend 20 minutes, an hour with every single person you meet, asking them meaningful questions and learning their life story in 10 seconds you can do as much as if you're getting coffee, you can, you can just say, Hey, what's your name by the way? And they can go Jeff and you go, Jeff, thanks so much. I hope you have a nice day. That five seconds out of your life recognizes their humanity. And you can do that every day with everyone you meet. And the ripple effect is massive. The way that you talk about it in the book, I mean, it's really worthwhile getting the book. It was such an enjoyable read. It was entertaining. It made me laugh. It made me tear up. It was really practical too, like some really practical tactical strategies for making connections. And again, when I think about it through the education lens, what teacher or what administrator does not want to connect with their students, the parents that they interact with on a daily basis, their colleagues, uh, and then of course their employees, right? So it's just super powerful. And when you mentioned the name piece, There was a part in there that just made so much sense to me, but the way that you laid out the names chapter, like how to remember names was really, really useful. Is there any way that you might be able to share maybe one or two of your favorite strategies for remembering names? Because I know in, I mean, names are a huge, huge door opener and connection maker. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I, I gotta tell you, I, I never expected that chapter to be, you know, the thing that people talk about. And like you said, names, they're kind of a funny thing. Like, on one hand, they're arbitrary. We're given those names, they're just a pointer. They're just, it's just like a, like a, like a variable in math. It's just an X, right? I'm, there's a, a sequence of noises you make to get my attention and the attention of a bajillion other people, right? Also, they're not that unique for the most part. There are literally over 5,000 Brian Millers in America, for the record, and three of us were in my high school at the same time, hmm. which is bananas. Um, so... Names are arbitrary, but at the same time, they're the most personal thing we have because we've heard our name from the time we were born until now. We've heard our name always, which is why the cocktail effect is so is so fascinating psychologically. When you're in a crowded cocktail area and it's loud and noisy and you can't hear anything, let alone your, you can't even hear your own thoughts. But if someone practically whispers your name across the room, you hear it and find it instantly. Mm. It's unbelievable how sensitive we are to our own names, which is why names uh, are, are such are, are so valuable as a as a connection device, right? And so one of the things I, I tell people right away is that there's a million tactics for remembering names. And I go through a lot of them in that in, in the book in the chapter. Um, the very first thing you should do is listen when they tell you what their name is. Mm. And if we just did that, most of the other tactics wouldn't matter because we just aren't listening. I mean, we're just not listening, 
right? How many times do you ask for somebody's name and instantly forget what it is? Yep. Like every time. And the reason we forget people's names instantly is because as soon as we stop asking the question, hey, what's your name? We are instantly thinking about how we're going to tell them what our name is. We don't listen at all. We're just in our own heads going, okay, am I going to tell them first name? Should I give them my last name? Should I hand my business card? Do I put on my hand? Should I shake their, do I give them a hug? We instantly get back in our own heads and then we look up and realize they just said their name and we didn't even hear it, right? It's buried in our subconscious somewhere, but then you have to dig to get that back out. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be better if we just listened when they told us? So first things first is simply be present. When someone else is speaking, the goal is not to be focusing on what you're going to say next. The goal is to be focusing on what they're saying and why they're saying it. And this is the crucial point in listening skills and active listening. It's not just to pay close attention. It's to ask yourself while they're telling you, why are they telling me this? There must be a reason. The way that this relates to names is that names are a gift. They are a gift that we give to others. We are protective of our own names in spite of how, fa- how, how, how often we use them, right? We are very protective. Like if a stranger says, hey, what's your name? You're, you're, you're in, your guard goes up, right? You're like, why? Mm-hmm. Like, even if the cashier is you're checking out, it's like, what's your name? And you, you kind of want to be like, why? You wanna, you're going to start sending me marketing emails? Like, you know what I mean? Like yes. you instantly, your guard's like, nah, I don't need to give you anything, please. Thank you. Um, So we really only give our names out when we either we have to, right, because we're checking in somewhere, it's on a form or whatever, or when we want to make a connection with somebody or at least open to making a connection. We give our names out when we're, 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 you know, trying to reach across that gap to bridge the gap. Um, So when you recognize that the reason someone's giving you their name is that they're putting their faith in you, they're putting their trust in you, they're building their half of the bridge. You take care of their names much more simply by recognizing the importance of the fact that they're giving it to you. One of the easiest things you can do is you can ask somebody either for how they spell their name or how they pronounce their name. So for instance, uh, there's a bunch of different ways you could pronounce your name. So if I asked you, how do you pronounce your name? Morgan. Morgan. Yeah. Excellent. I would have called it Morgan if I didn't know that. Morgan, thanks so much. I appreciate it. It's really nice to meet you, Morgan. So I just used two different techniques from that chapter in the span of about 10 seconds. One of them is I asked you for the pronunciation. So it forces you to tell me your name a second time if I've already heard it or seen it, right? Right. So I hear it again. And it also forces me to say it at least once to make sure I've got it right, Morgan. So now I've said it and I've said it with intention. There was a reason behind me saying it. So... Um, if you ask someone how to spell, if they go Kathy, I can go Kathy with a C or with a K and they go with a C and I go, Oh, Kathy with a C, C A T H Y. And they no C A T H I E. Oh, C A T H I E. When you do that, your brain lodges it in visually because you're spelling it in your mind. But the other tactic I just kind of demonstrated both in those scenarios is repeating someone's name two to three times in one sentence. And when you first try this, it's really awkward. You feel like you're being really weird by hitting someone's name three times in one sentence. Um, but it's not awkward to hear it. It's only awkward to do it. And this is a technique I learned as a, as a performer where I had like eight to 10 volunteers over the course of an hour uh, during a show and I had to remember people's names to call back to them. So I would say, um, 
you would tell me your name, Morgan, and I would say, Morgan, it's nice to meet you, Morgan. Uh, so, Morgan, tell me a little bit about yourself. Now, that feels weird because we're doing it in a sterile environment, talking about the technique right now. Yes. But when you do it in the context of an actual conversation, it really doesn't sound weird. And we like hearing our own name. When we hear our own name, we feel like we're being individualized, personalized. We're not being broadcast to. So, um, so yeah, two, two easy tactics to get you started are um, to ask for spelling or pronunciation and to repeat their name two to three times in one sentence. And Brian, I think it's just such a great point because I think any time, and I think you mentioned this either in an interview or in your book or both, but some of the interviews that you felt most connected with or the interactions that you felt most connected with, like you left that interaction going, wow, that was really great, or I really feel like I connected with that person. When you think back to some of the effective, it might have even been your blog, actually. It was, I think it was, yeah, it was a, your blog, it was a blog yeah. post recently. Yeah, yeah, you think back to those interactions. When you reflect on that, one of the elements was the fact that they used your name in conversations. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really true. And, and to be honest, that I'm good at using it at the beginning because it helps me remember. I'm the reason I think I, I wrote that. I think it was in a in a post about um, Cal Fussman's podcast, That's which right. is yeah, yes, which was. is called Big Questions. Uh, I'm not associated with him at all, so this is not like a, a plug for him or whatever. Uh, but at the same time amazing podcast if you've never listened to it, it is. and he's just a world-class uh, journalist and um so yeah i realized that he uses people's names over the course of an hour like at least three to four times like over the course of an hour he'll start a question or a sentence where he'll be like all right so morgan tell me again why you think about whatever and i realized that i don't do that once I'm in full conversational swing. I just answer questions and ask questions and we go back and forth like, you know, like you would talk to your friend. But going out of your way to occasionally hit their name at the beginning is it's yeah, it, it, it's fascinating how it doesn't it, it made me um, subconsciously feel so much more connected to one of my conversational partners. So Okay, so when I think back to the story you told about the quote unquote that guy, like the Dave in your story, I just couldn't help but connect all of the reluctant learners I've ever had. And I was like, oh my God, that's the kid that you have every year that's like, I don't want to do that, that crumples their paper, that doesn't see themselves as a learner until you do that thing that connects them somehow. He was a really hesitant, fearful audience member. He did not like magic. And then somehow by the end, he had transitioned to the other side. It was magical. Can you talk about that? I would love to talk about that. That was the time when I did, I did some private event, uh, you know, kind of after dinner magic show. And uh, before the show, I was going around to the tables doing the close-up magic like we talked about earlier. And I, and I do that. I used to do that a lot when I was a full-time magician. If I was doing an after-dinner show, I would just recommend to the client that they also had me do, you know, 30 minutes to an hour of close-up magic during the cocktail hour because I got to meet people in person. I got to shake their hand, get their names. And I said, what that's going to do is by the time I get up on stage after dinner for the show, I'm not some stranger in a suit. 
that's here to entertain to them. I'm Brian. They've already met me. I'm a part of the event. You know, I'm a part of the group, essentially. I'm basically a guest at that point that they've already connected with. And so it works in my favor because I got a built in, you know, everybody likes me before I even hit the stage. And um, and and it makes the the guests feel like they got a really full, inclusive evening of entertainment. So and uh, every so often you get someone who is just not interested. It's it's like they went out for the night and before they went out, they said, I refuse to enjoy myself tonight. You know, <laughs> they it's the it's the kid with his arms crossed. I dare you to, to make me learn. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. And I see them in when I do the youth motivational speaking engagements sometimes, especially middle school. That's seventh and eighth grade. Sometimes you got that kid with their arms crossed and you just go, oh, man, you need this more than anybody. Come on, dude. <laughs> you know, seventh graders and CEOs. Those are the two people that do that. Uh, <laughs> not all CEOs. Not all CEOs. I had this guy that when I went to the table, the whole table was just having fun. I mean, they were laughing and really enjoying themselves. And he's just got his arms crossed and he's sitting stoic. And at one point he's just, I realize he's not even looking at me. I mean, this guy's not even watching at some point. And I, I tried to like do some of the tricks you can use as an interactive entertainer. You can ask them a question directly like, you know, Hey, can you help me out with this? You know, cause that sometimes just forces them into engagement. And once they're in, like, you can kind of pull them into it. And once they start engaging, they realize it's fun and they relax. Brian, um, that, sorry, that is like precisely what teachers do with challenging kids. <laughs> hey, can you help me do the calendar over here? You know, so-and-so it's too funny. Like the parallels are uncanny. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he was having none of it. Like, I mean, he was, just, you know, kind of grunting at me almost like, you know what I mean? He was doing like, he was becoming a caveman. Like, at some point, essentially I addressed it directly. And he said, I don't believe in magic. And I was like, Oh, you're that guy, right? Cause there's that guy is at every event. If you got 200 people, one of them is that guy, the, I don't believe in magic guy. Right. And listen, to each their own. You don't have to like magic. I don't like, I don't know, country music. That doesn't mean all your listeners who like country music shouldn't be <laughs> like, don't, don't go away. I didn't say it's not okay for you to like it. You like it. You love it. That's great. There's so many different things for all of us. Isn't the world amazing, right? Yeah. We have everything anybody can like. Actually, I, to me, that's, a, that's very generous when they say right up front, I don't like magic. Go, great. Have a great evening, right? Yeah. You can't do that as a teacher. All right, just enjoy your year and uh, <laughs> play with, I don't know, Play-Doh or something. Um, so, but with this guy, he didn't say I don't like magic. He said I don't believe in magic. Right. And I realized that's why he was tuning it out was because he thought it like I was trying to convince him that magic was real, which of course I'm doing card tricks. I'm not like, you know, like, like, you know, you, you know, my sense of humor. This is how I used to perform. Like it's a goof. I wasn't, I was the last thing from a realistic looking magician. Um, but he said, I don't believe in magic. And so I said, uh, great. Like neither do I. And he, he, perked up and he looked at me. He made eye contact like for the first time. And I, I said, isn't it wonderful that just for a few minutes, we can all experience this impossible thing as if it was real. And I could just see it hit him that I was able to recognize where he was coming from. And I was able to give him my perspective, a different perspective than the one he was trapped in, in that moment. And 
he was perfectly cordial after that. And I thanked the group and they were all great. I did my show after I had packed up for the night, you know, and then I'm, I, there's, you know, a lot of the people have left, but his table's still there. And this, I'm, I'm walking out the door, dragging 50 pound cases and, <laughs> and everything. And this woman comes running up to me, taps me on the shoulder. She said, thank you so much. The show was amazing. We had so much fun. And she goes, um, there's someone who wants to, to, uh, you know, say goodbye to you. And she points and she's pointing right at that guy, Dave. Hmm. And I put my stuff down and I walked over. As we're walking over, she said to me, she goes, you know, he watched the entire show. He never looked away. He loved it. I get over to him and my goal is not to make him feel bad for kind of being a jerk earlier. There's no point in doing that. Like that's your instinct when, you, when you've been, you know, hurt by somebody, right? But there's no point in that. The point is to move forward and foster a connection where once there wasn't one. I just walked up with a big smile on my face. I put my you know, outstretched hand as I approached him so he could see I was coming over friendly, not coming over to, you know, to make him feel bad. And I just said, uh, hey, I, I, I hope you enjoyed the show. And, he, and he, go, he shook my hand with like two hands, like big hearty handshake. And he said, he said, you know, he goes, I, I just don't understand how the tricks work. I know it's not real, but I just don't know how you do it. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed yourself tonight. And, and, and we left uh, in a really positive note and he had a good time. So. So incredible. And I just think you touched on, you were able to see it from his side and understand that there was a vulnerability there and a fear. And I think quite often human beings react by putting up a wall and being super resistant when yeah. they are encountering something they don't understand. And I think back to learning, it's so similar because as soon as a child feels as though they don't understand or they're not in on the joke, that's their exact response. And I think our most successful opportunity to tap back into that awe and the wonder and the actual learning is to see it from their perspective and to sort of address the fear and to not be forcing them into it or making them feel small for not seeing the magic in it because they don't. They're they're having a hard time seeing it. So I just, I love that story. Thank you. I don't think I've ever actually told that out out loud. It was, uh, I think it's, I think it's fear. I think, you know, I, I say a lot, arrogance is born out of insecurity, but confidence is born out of experience. And oh, yeah. I think that arms crossed kind of arrogant attitude that you get sometimes it's fear. It's insecurity. It's, 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 I don't know this. And I'm worried that it would be too hard for me to, to do it or to enjoy it or to learn it or whatever it is. Um, so instead I'm going to pretend like I'm above it. And I, so I do think that comes from, uh, from, from insecurity, whereas, uh, you know, confidence comes from experience. Yeah. And I think it's an armor and it protects mm -hmm. us until it, it doesn't right. Until it kind right. of doesn't serve us anymore. Right. Before we move on to the rapid fire questions, is there anything that you want to touch on? Well, I mean, I uh, I really enjoy your your podcast. You know, I've been listening to it, and uh, I, I think what you're you're doing and your mission um, for you know pushing kindness out into the world and making people more aware of how we can implement kindness because it's kind of an a, a, you know uh, an ethereal concept, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, kindness, you know, it's kind of like connection, you know, it's like, great, but now what? Right. Um, exactly. so I love the way you're getting at it and I've really enjoyed, you know, I've really enjoyed listening to, to, uh, you have some of the best conversations and best interview questions. This is so great. This has been so delightful. Thank you. I would like to move forward to those three rapid fires. If you're good with it, is there anything else that you want to touch on before we move on? No, I think this has been this has been wonderful. You know, if folks want to 
find me. I'm I'm accessible. So you know, uh, uh, I'm I've got my own podcast. It's onenewperson.com. Um, it's all about chance encounters and lasting impact. A lot of the sorts of stories you've you know we've been talking about here. That's uh, I bring on other guests to tell their stories of chance encounters and ripple effect. And uh, you know, I run a weekly blog at uh, humanconnection.blog. Somehow I actually own that domain name. Hmm. Um, so you can go to humanconnection.blog. And uh, I'm actually I'd love to connect with anybody on LinkedIn these days. It's where I'm I'm trying to uh, be most active on 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 the socials is, is on LinkedIn. So um, you know, I explore human connection from a variety of different forms long form, short form, audio, video. So anything you're interested in, I'm, I'm out there uh, doing it. I'd love to have anybody as a part of the community, uh, you know, pushing, pushing human connection, pushing the human connection revolution forward, because I think we desperately need it right now. What does kindness mean to you, Brian? Okay, so I think it's really important that we distinguish being nice from being kind. Mm-hmm. I want to be thought of as kind. But I'm not sure I always want to be thought of as nice. And and here's the difference. Nice people have a habit of being stepped on. They have a habit of being taken advantage of, used for other people's ends. And usually it's because when people are overly nice, they don't know how to command respect. Mm. And I always think we respect people who are kind, even when we don't agree with them. Because kindness allows you to stand up for yourself and to stand up for your values without alienating the person that you're disagreeing with. So you asked what is kindness. I think the answer for me is kindness is a choice. It's choosing to say, I hear you, I see you, and I'm still here for you even if we don't always see eye to eye. That's, uh, that's what kindness means to me. Wow, what a great distinction. I think that's powerful. What one skill or superpower does an educator need to lead with in order to be effective? Perspective taking. Absolutely, 100%. Um, Perspective taking and empathy, that's another distinction that we ought to make. We hear a lot about empathy, especially in the education space. It's become a real buzzword, a real hashtag out there. Mm -hmm. And like 100%, yes, empathy is the goal. But the, the problem with trying to teach empathy is that empathy is an emotion. It's something you feel, right? Um, it's, it's hard to teach it as a skill, but perspective taking is a skill. It is simply the ability to see the world from the point of view of another person, right? To take on their perspective. And we take perspectives not by guessing, this, we get this wrong all the time. We, we, when we buy a gift for, for a friend or a spouse or whatever, um, we guess what they would like. Uh, and that's why we get it wrong so often. Leads to lots of sitcom moments and, you know, all the classic, you know, kind of sitcom scenes when we, we get gift giving wrong. You know, we think we're mind readers, but, but we're not. But we act as if we are because we guess. No, it, guessing isn't the point. Imagining what would it be like to be this person isn't the point. Perspective taking happens when you ask people questions. You ask for their perspective. All the way back with when we were talking about Ed, one thing I didn't talk about in the in when I told the story here on on you know a, a few minutes ago was before the trick I asked Ed, "Have you always been blind?" 
which might at first seem like a rude question unless you put it in the context of, you know, our having met a second time where the entire context of our meeting was the fact that he was blind. I didn't realize that. And I'd been unwilling to do magic. The, it was the entire, you know, um, umbrella under which we were meeting. So it was within bounds to ask him about his blindness. And I asked, have you always been blind? And he told me, yes. And that was really important. That was like really crucial for me to know because the perspective of somebody who has never been able to see will be drastically different from someone who had their sight and then lost it, right? To like accident or illness. So by, you know, with Ed, I can't even use the language of sight. He might not know what I was talking about. So perspective taking, asking people to share their point of view and respecting that, that if you get good at doing that, that naturally leads you to empathy. You become more empathetic naturally if you get good at perspective taking. So I would say perspective taking is, is the, the number one uh, skill because it leads to all the other stuff we care about, understanding and empathy and connection. Fabulous. What is one quote that you would print on one of those quote cups that could be sold in bookstores around the world? I love this question. <laughs> Everyone you meet is important. So very true. So true. Thank you so much, Brian Miller, for joining me today on Kindsight 101. It's been a delight, as I expected. It's just been wonderful. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for having me. I really, really love the work that you're doing. I'm, I'm thrilled we were able to, uh, to connect. Awesome. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21 day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that. It was such a pleasure to be a guest on Morgan's show. Again, go give her some love by checking out smallactbigimpact.com, subscribing to the Kindsight 101 podcast. All of these links are in the description of, um, are in the show notes, rather, of this episode on onenewperson.com. Connect with Morgan on social media. Connect with me. Connect with all of us. And uh, say hello. Use hashtag one new person all spelled out so we can find you and thank you. I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time.